Section 18 of Canada, South America, Central America, Mexico, and the West Indies. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Piotr Natter. The World's Story, Volume 11. Canada, South America, Central America, Mexico, and the West Indies. Edited by Eva March Tappan. Section 18. How People Lived in New France, 17th Century, by Charles G. D. Roberts. The houses of the habitants, the tillers of the soil, were small cabins, humble but warm, with wide, overhanging eaves, and consisting at most of two rooms. The partition, when there was one, was of boards. Lath and plaster were unknown. The walls within, to a height of a man's shoulder, were worn smooth by the backs that leaned against them. Solid wooden boxes and benches usually took the place of chairs. A clumsy loom, on which the women wove their coarse homespuns of wool or flax, occupied one corner of the main room, and a deep box-like cradle, always rocking, stood beside the ample fireplace. Over the fire stood the long black arms of a crane, on which was done most of the cooking, though the bake-kettle sometimes relieved its labors, and the brick oven was a standby in houses of the rich inhabitants, as well as of the gentry. For the roasting of meats the spit was much in use, and there was a gridion with legs to stand on the hearth with a heap of hot coals raked under it. The houses, even of the upper classes, were seldom two stories in height, but they were here furnished with a good deal of luxury, and in the cities they were sometimes built of stone. A typical country mansion, the dwelling of a seigneur on his domain, was usually of the following fashion. The main building, one story in height, but perhaps a hundred feet long, was surmounted by lofty gables and a very steep roof, built thus to shed the snow and to give a roomy attic for bedchambers. The attic was lighted by numerous high-peaked dormer windows, piercing the expanse of the roof. This main building was flanked by one or more wings. Around it clustered the wash-house, adjoining the kitchen, coach-house, barns, stable, and woodsheds. This home-like cluster of walls and roofs was sheltered from the winter storm by groves of evergreen, and girdled cheerily by orchard and kitchen garden. On one side, and not far off, was usually a village with a church spire gleaming over it, on the other a circular stone mill resembling a little fortress rather than a peaceful aid to industry. This structure, where all the tenants of the seigneur, the sensitaires, were obliged to grind their grain, had indeed been built in the first place to serve not only as a mill, but as a place of refuge from the Iroquois. It was furnished with the loopholes, and was impregnable to the attacks of an enemy lacking cannon. The dress of the upper classes was like that prevailing among the same classes in France, though much less extravagant. The hair was worn powdered and in high elaborate coiffures. Men's fashions were more picturesque than those of the present day. Their hair, curled, powdered, and sometimes tied in a queue, were surmounted by a graceful, low-crowned hat with caught-up brim. This headdress was superseded on occasion of ceremony by the stately three-cornered hat. The long, white-frocked coats were of gay-colored and costly material, with lace at neck and wristbands. The waistcoat might be richly embroidered with gold or silver. Knee-breeches took the place of our unshapely trousers and were fastened with bright buckles at the knee. 
stockings were of white or coloured silk and shoes were set off by broad buckles at the instep these of course were the dresses of ceremony the dresses seen at balls and grand receptions out of doors and in the winter especially the costumes of the nobility were more distinctly canadian overcoats of native cloth were worn with large pointed hoods their pattern is preserved to the present day in the blanket coats of our snowshoers young men might be seen going about in colours that brightened the desolate landscape gay belts of green blue red or yellow enriched the waists of their thick overcoats their scarlet leggings were laced up with green ribbons their moccasins were gorgeously embroidered with dyed porcupine quills their caps of beaver or marten were sometimes tied down over their ears with vivid handkerchiefs of silk the habitants were rougher and more sombre in their dress a black homespun coat grey leggings grey woollen cap heavy moccasins of cowhide this grave costume was usually brightened by a belt or sash of the liveliest colours the country women had to content themselves with the same coarse homespuns which they wore in short full skirts but they got the gay colours which they loved in kerchiefs for their necks and shoulders in war the regulars were sharply distinguished from those of the british army by their uniforms the white of the house of bourbon was the colour that marked their regiments as scarlet marked those of the british the militia or wood rangers fought in their ordinary dress or occasionally with the object of terrifying their enemies put on the war-paint and eagle quills of the indians the muskets of the day were the heavy weapons known as flintstocks when the trigger was pulled the flint came down sharply on a piece of steel and the spark falling into a shallow pan of powder called the priming ignited the charge the regulars carried bayonets on the ends of their muskets but the militia and rangers had little use for these weapons they depended on their marksmanship which was deadly the regulars fired breast high in the direction of their enemy trusting to the steadiness and closeness of their fire but the colonials did not waste their precious bullets and powder in this way they had learned from the indians whom they could beat at their own game to fight from behind trees rocks or hillocks to load and fire lying down and to surprise their enemies by stealing noiselessly through the underbrush at close quarters they fought like the indians with knife and hatchet both of which were carried in their belts from the ranger's belt too when on the march hung the leathern bag of bullets and the inevitable tobacco pouch while from his neck swung a powder horn often richly carved together with his cherished pipe enclosed in its case of skin very often however the ranger spared himself the trouble of a pipe by scooping a bowl in the back of his tomahawk and fitting it with a hollow handle thus the same implement became both the comfort of his leisure and the torment of his enemies in winter when the canadians expert in the use of the snowshoe and fearless of the cold did much of their fighting they wore thick peaked hoods over their heads and looked like a procession of friars wending through the silent forest on some errand of piety or mercy their hands were covered by thick mittens of woolen yarn and they dragged their provisions and blankets on sleds or toboggans at night they would use their snowshoes to shovel a wide circular pit in the snow clearing it away to the bare earth in the centre of the pit they would build their campfire and sleep around it on piles of spruce boughs secure from the winter wind 
The leaders, usually members of the nobility, fared on these expeditions as rudely as their men, and outdid them in courage and endurance. Some of the most noted chiefs of the wood rangers were scions of the noblest families, and though living most of the year the life of savages, were able to shine by their graces and refinement in the courtliest society of the day. The French Canadians of all classes were a social people. Quebec and Montreal, even when wolf's cannon were startling the hills of the St. Lawrence, found hard for the delights of dance and dinner party. The governor and the high officials were required by etiquette to entertain with lavish generosity. Balls were kept up till six or seven in the morning. Conversation was a fine art with these sprightly and witty people. The country homes of the seigneurs, such as we have described, were the scene of many gaieties. Driving parties, picking up guests from each manor house as they passed it, would gather at some hospitable abode. When tired of the stately dances, then in fashion, the guests would amuse themselves with games such as now, when men seems less light-hearted or more self-conscious, are mostly left to children. Society was so limited in numbers that all the members of it knew each other intimately, and the merriest freedom was possible. Hide the handkerchief, fox and geese, my lady's toilet, and various games of forfeit were among those that made life cheerful for the Canadians of old. Then there was riding in the summer, and in winter sledging over the crisp glittering snow. Baptisms, betrothals, and weddings were made occasions of feasting, and on May Day the hoisting of the maple in front of the seigneur's house was accompanied by much merrymaking, eating, drinking, bonfires, and the firing of guns. This feast was the affair of the inhabitants, who were for that day guests of the seigneur. The maple, presented and erected by them, was a tall, peeled fir tree, with a tuft of green left on its top, and surmounted by a red and green weathercock. The whiteness of the peeled trunk was speedily blackened by the salutes of blank powder fired against it. During most of the year the inhabitant fared very plainly. A feast, therefore, was something to make the most of. On such occasions he drank a good deal of brandy. Among the upper classes drunkenness was a disgrace, and all but unknown. During the early days of the colony, the inhabitants had lived chiefly on bread and eels. Throughout the early part of the eighteenth century, they lived on salt meat, milk, and bread for the greater part of the year. But in winter, fresh meat was abundant. Travelling was pleasant, and from Christmas to Ash Wednesday, there was a ceaseless round of visits. Half a dozen sleighs would drive up to a inhabitant's cottage. A dozen of his friends would jump out, stable their horses, and flock chattering into the warm kitchen. The housewife at this season was always prepared for guests. She had meats of various kinds roasted and put away cold. All she had to do was to thrust them into the hot oven, and in a few minutes the dinner was ready. At such times bread was despised by everybody, and sweet cakes took its place. When the inhabitants, as on May Day, were feasted by their seigneur, the table was loaded with a profusion of delicacies. Legs of veal and mutton, roasts and cutlets of fresh pork, huge bowls of savoury stew, pies of many kinds, shaped like a half-moon, large tarts of jam, with doughnuts fried in lard and rolled in maple sugar, were among the favourite dishes. The habitant cared little for the seigneur's wines, because they did not, to use his own expression, scratch the throat enough. Among the upper classes, breakfast was a light meal, with white wine and coffee, usually taken at eight o'clock. Dinner was at midday, and supper at seven. 
soup was always served at both these meals on the great sideboard filled with silver and china which usually occupied one end of the dining-room and reached to the ceiling stood cordials to encourage the appetite in one corner stood a water-jar of blue and white porcelain at which guests might rinse their hands before going to table the table was served with a great abundance of choice fish and game each person's place was supplied with napkin plate silver goblet spoon and fork but every one carried and used his own knife some of these closed with a spring and were carried in the pocket others were worn in a shield of morocco of silk or of birch bark quaintly wrought with indian designs in beads and porcupine quills this sheath was generally worn hanging from the neck by an ornamental cord the habitants often used a clasp knife with no spring which had to be kept open when in use by means of the thumb to use such a knife was a feat requiring some practice among the dishes specially favoured by the upper classes was one of great size and richness and of very elaborate construction called the easter pastry this pastry was eaten cold lest it should break in the cooking and so lose its flavour the lower crust was an inch in thickness the contents were nothing less than a turkey two chickens partridges pigeons and the thighs of rabbits larded with slices of pork embedded in balls of force meat and onions and seasoned with almost all the spices of the pantry with such a dish to set before them it is no wonder that the canadians of old enjoyed their banquets to keep up the cheer of hearts that aids the digestions all the company sang in turn about the table the ladies bearing their full share with the men it was a happy and innocent life which sped in the manor-houses of the st lawrence where the influence of bigot and his crew was not allowed to reach though many of the seigneurs were ruined at the conquest and many others left the country those who remained kept up their ancient customs long after the flag of france had ceased to wave above quebec and some of these venerated usages survive in the province to this day End of section 18. This recording is in the public domain.